This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. trouble starting the show in a while we could just start it how would you start it would you start it say welcome to overdue this is a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read my name is craig oh so i should say welcome to overdue this is a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read my name is craig my name is andrew and we're deciding to start the show now (laughs) normally we have an introduction but we just hung out this weekend so we don't have like anything to talk about that we haven't already talked about is that well, I don't know that that's empirically true, but the, I like conversation with another person is like a glass that fills up slowly as you like don't as things happen to you and you're not talking to each other about them. And then you drink each other. Yeah. And so if you just saw each other, like your glasses are empty, like we pretty much know whatever is going on with each other. Yeah. You know everything about me now. That's yeah. just how it works. And so over the next week, like as I accumulate new experiences that you haven't shared with me we'll have more to talk about again yes so next week tune in where andrew and i will have actually interesting things to say about ourselves i'm sure we will uh that's usually how it goes but this Mm -hmm. week we're just going to continue as usual it's the first show of 2016 which actually should have been our opening Happy New Year, everyone. Oh, yeah, it is the Happy New Year. <laughs> happy New Year. Uh, 2015 was a banner year for the show, as we said multiple times in December. So we're looking forward to 2016. Hopefully it's as good as the last one. For us personally. And for you personally. Do you ever feel bad like when you personally have a good year, but the world at large has kind of a crappy year? <laughs> oh, you mean 2015? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Think. That's about how we're all feeling right now, I think. Yeah. Do you want to talk about a book instead of let's, 2015 yeah, let's, for the world? Yeah, let's examine the privilege of some characters in a book rather than our own. That sounds reasonable. All right. What Every week, for those of you just joining us in 2016, every week one of us reads a book and then explains it to the other one, and we have some laughs and some learns, and everyone has fun. Craig, what did you read this week, and who is it by? I read The Scarlet Pimpernel by Baroness Emma Ortsy. Yeah. Ortsy is the pronunciation right. I found too, so we're good. Like, kind, of, kind of like Czech Ortsy? I don't know. She's it's Hungarian. Hungarian so. Yeah, it's Hungarian, so all yeah. bets are off, I guess. Spelled O-R-C-Z-Y. And it is a book that was published <laughs> in 1908. <laughs> But it was also a play, and it's also part of like a huge canon of Scarlet Pimpernel's stories. Yeah, by my count, there are sixteen uh, Pimpernel novels. There are actually there are seventeen that Wikipedia lists. One is just a collection of uh, other Pimpernel books, and then some of those novels are collections of shorter stories that apparently um, reuse some 
plot lines and and ideas and things from some of the Pimpernel novels. Color so. me surprised. There are <laughs> lots lots and lots of Pimpernel books for people who want to read them, and they also jump around in time chronologically. Like the fifteenth Pimpernel book is the second chronologically. Yeah, this is like one of those. It's one of those uh, excavation kind of things where you crack open a book that every that you know a bunch of people have talked about or that a bunch of people know. And then you find out that there's like 20 other books underneath it that are Mm -hmm. all related, Mm -hmm. like all the C.S. Lewis books or the I was surprised when we did the Wizard of Oz like three years ago, how many other Wizard of Oz books there were. There are a bunch of them, right? Yeah. Before comics were around, people were just cranking out novels as quickly as they could. Painting pictures with their words. So what do we know about Emma Ortsey, Andrew? Because I don't know much. All right. She was born in 1865, died in 1947. She was a working author for much of her life. She was actively working into her 80s. And the last Pimpernel book, I don't think her last work overall, but the last of the Pimpernel books was published in 1940. So Hmm. uh, so pretty late. Uh, She married her husband, Montague McLean Barstow. Um, he was an artist and didn't earn a lot of money, but they were very happy together, apparently, which is not always a thing with marriages, like especially in this era, I don't think. <laughs> People seem mostly indifferent toward each other. <laughs> I don't know. I was watching a, a clip of Downton Abbey today, and it mm-hmm. was talking about having a quote unquote real marriage or a marriage where you're like brother and sister who just hang out a lot, which I think. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> Those are two very different ideas. <laughs> well, you know, it's the early 20th century. It sort of fits. So, yeah, her they didn't have a lot of money. Um, so she was doing some work as a translator and an illustrator on the side. Um, she wrote a debut novel called The Emperor's Candlesticks in uh, 1901. I think it was not particularly successful. But um, she wrote some short stories, some detective stories for the Royal Magazine. Mm -hmm. Um, um, That magazine also published some stuff by Agatha Christie and uh, Miss Marple, apparently, made her first appearance in a Royal Magazine story. So that's neat. Um, And wrote another book. But the Pimpernel thing was her biggest success. So the stories about the chronology of this sort of varied a little bit, depending on the source I was looking at. But... Mm. um, the version that I think is the right one is that she wrote the novel, was shopping it around to like a dozen publishers, couldn't generate a lot of interest for it. And so with her husband, she turned it into a play, which was very successful, which then helped launch the book to popularity. And so then the conflict there is I can't figure out for sure whether the play version or the novel version was first. Yes, certainly. But the popularity of both was kind of tied up. Well, and what I was reading about the play is that it was not as poorly received as something like Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark initially, but the critics did not care for it. And so they rewrote the last act, and perhaps the critics still did not care for it. But those but people liked it. Those dummies buying the tickets sure loved it. <laughs> uh, and, it's, and that's what's important. It's like a, you know, it's a cape and sword adventure in a way and I, I think by the turn of the 20th century you're starting to get into theater that is a little more realistic and so mm-hmm. could be perceived as old-fashioned um yeah 
which it certainly was. But then so, that, yeah, your to your point, that certainly created demand for a novel. Yeah, that so that 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 book led to the creation of many many others, obviously, um, that were published pretty regularly through you know from the 1900s into you know up till 1940. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they were so popular that occasionally even. Uh, Ortsy's non-Pimpernel novels were advertised as Pimpernel novels. <laughs> um, and then about Ortsy personally, she was into British imperialism. Um, she was into being a member of the aristocracy. Oh, yeah. And apparently this has its roots in uh, something that happened when she was three years old, a story that I found, where um, they were having a party and her parents made her and her sister, I think, go to bed early. And then they looked out the window and saw the peasants were burning their fields. <laughs> so there's like a peasant uprising. And she so said, that, never again. That instilled in her, I guess, a love of her her specifically being rich okay. and other people not being well, because the second you're poor, you just start lighting things on fire. That's what I've heard. You're just so mad that people have things that you don't have. That it's now your turn to burn them. Begin burning things down. You're just redistributing wealth, I guess. That's yeah. what people are so scared of when they talk about incoming equality. <laughs> just some some men just want the to watch the world burn. Some men just want enough money to order a pizza. Like that's just. That's just how it goes. I like that pizza is your idea of rich people food. No, it, no, pizza's my idea of getting by. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's that's the big stuff about Ortsy. She she her husband died a few years before her, and she was really sad about it. And I also found out that she apparently wrote the Pimpernel novel in five weeks. Okay. I'm having trouble thinking of anything significant that I've done in like any given five weeks of my life. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's about how long I get to make a play, but then it like hangs around for another couple weeks. So, and you know, those are of debatable significance. Mm-hmm. So, and we make these in like what an hour. <laughs> give or take <laughs> give or take depending on how many minutes it takes us to get an intro off the ground it's all relative yeah so that's that's uh ortsy yeah uh, she really liked drama and that's kind of where the scarlet pimpernel comes in right yeah pretty much so uh, set me a backdrop for this book so this book it tells you right at the top 1792 mm-hmm. we're in france and so we are on the verge of the the reign of terror during the French Revolution. Okay. Um, I only know a little bit about this, so help me out where you can. We're okay. getting into Robespierre and the Committee for Public Safety, I think it's called, where sure. ba- basically, you know, they killed the king, King Louis the... Uh, and... Uh, 16th. Okay, great, thanks. XVI. XVI. <laughs> king Louis XVI. Uh, they chopped off his head, and now they are, you know, they had a bunch of rules in place where they could kill anyone that they thought was being too rich. <laughs> too bougie. <laughs> too bougie. <laughs> too bougie to live. <laughs> Which is, like, there is something about reading the first chapter of this book. 
uh, is like an opening gambit for the Scarlet Pimpernel. And it's what it's a story about him, you know, outsmarting a French guard. Now, this is set up against the backdrop of the, in the second paragraph, the guillotine is very busy. Like that's <laughs> like a sentiment that gets expressed. Sure. And all of the aristos are getting killed, which is a pretty cool nickname for bougie rich people. I am kind of interested to see if if uh, Ortiz love of the aristocracy comes through in what the pimpernel is doing oh it does don't okay, worry cool cool cool, <laughs> cool all these aristos are getting killed um and the scarlet pimpernel is an englishman who is all about getting these aristo refugees across the channel to england okay where so, they can safely be rich without being bothered by the riffraff precisely <laughs> okay great uh, the other backdrop, as it is expressed kind of later in the book, is that the sentiment is, hey, these commoners started out, these French commoners started out with good intentions. There were centuries of mistreatment from the rich people against the poor, and something had to be done, but now they've taken it a step too far. Yeah, because like historically speaking, the French Revolution is looked upon very favorably. Like it Certainly. is. Um, the Wikipedia article, again, is full of uh, effusive praise. <laughs> uh, globally, the revolution accelerated the rise of republics and democracies. It became the focal point for the, the, the development of all modern political ideologies, leading to the spread of liberalism, radicalism, nationalism, socialism, feminism, and secularism, among many others. So fun. Yeah. Some of its central documents, like the Declaration of the Rights of Man, expanded the arena of human rights to include women and slaves, leading to movements for abolitionism and universal suffrage in the next century. And it's worth noting that the French Revolution, if it didn't like grow out of the American Revolution exactly, yeah, it did. Um, the American Revolution did. Uh, the French Revolution at least has some roots in the American Revolution, and some of the personnel. Or even the same. Yeah, they're not that far apart, right? It's like they basically years. follow each other. Yeah. Like if you if you have either watched the HBO original series John Adams or <laughs> the musical Hamilton, you'll know that the French Revolution happened right after the American Revolution, and whether America would participate or not was like a big question. Oh, totally. Of like late in George Washington's presidency and then into John Adams' presidency. What I but then you get so you get the French Revolution and then it turns into this reign of terror, right? Mm -hmm. Which, uh, as I'm kind of double checking right now, people turn on Robespierre after only two or three years, and one of the one of the things that happened in 1794, he just killed a bunch of nuns. Now I'm sure there's like a story behind that, but that's like more specific than the nuns walking up to the guillotine like singing a hymn. While they got killed for being so nuns. You don't think that the Reign of Terror just like has a branding problem. You think it actually <laughs> was pretty terrible. I don't know that he called it the Reign of Terror, but I think when he Nobody got Nobody thinks they're the bad guy. <laughs> Robespierre certainly did not think he the was the bad guy. The Reign of Pleasure. <laughs> so yeah, that, that turned that's three years after the events of this novel. So we are embarking on this period of history, which, you know, the the story being written in early 20th century. Uh, 
and you're watching the British Empire like come upon its both its height and its you know precipitous fall in in the next couple decades. Uh, I could see why um, this is what Ortsy's writing about. Yeah. Um, so the Pimpernel is basically Batman. Like I'm just gonna get that out there. Rich people, Batman. He is rich people, Batman. Okay, I was also gonna put forward reverse Robin Hood. <laughs> yes, certainly. Save save the rich from the poor. <laughs> yes, certainly. And I think the Pimpernel is actually credited as as a legit inspiration for stuff like Zorro and Batman, okay. where there is this person who has a secret identity, and only some people know who he is. This is the League of the Scarlet Pimpernel, uh, which is another book in this series that i accidentally bought trying to buy this book (laughs) so just i'll probably read that later i guess better not charge that to the overdue account no i actually read it i will (laughs) not i'm not gonna expense your accidents (laughs) so uh we get out of france and the book quickly jumps after this opening gambit to england we're hanging out in a coffee house called the fisherman's reel which is run by a Mr. Jelly Band. <laughs> awesome name. Best name. Mostly because people, whenever they need something, they just yell, Jelly! And then, <laughs> and then Jelly comes by. Really confusing when people just want Jelly. <laughs> it's really confusing. And uh, the League of the Scarlet Pimpernel is meeting here. It's not like explicitly said, but it's very clear that Sir Andrew Folk and a couple other guys are hanging out Talking about how cool the Pimpernel is. Now, is this like, like, are they just boosters for the Scarlet Pimpernel, or is this like a rich people Avengers? It's sort of a rich people Avengers. So they're all just secret superheroes going around and saving rich people from poor people. Except almost all of England seems to think the Scarlet Pimpernel is the best. Mm-hmm. Like, there are not very many uh, non-Aristo sympathizers, right? Okay. So, and mu- this is another thing. Much of Europe is kind of dubious about what to do with all these crazy French people who are killing everyone. So, England is kind of laying back and they're letting Batman do their do his thing. <laughs> so, in come a couple French people who uh, are related to Le Comte de Tournay, I believe his name is. And he is in jeopardy, still in France. His family has escaped thanks to the Scarlet Pimpernel. Mm-hmm. And eventually, the Pimpernel will go back to find him. That's like the setup of what's going to happen. But we don't actually meet the Pimpernel for like a good half of the book. Instead, our main character is Marguerite Saint Just. And you can tell by how I'm pronouncing her name that she is French. Okay. I guess I can tell that. Yeah. So the Pimpernel factors into the opening gambit, but once you switch to the main action of the story, you don't see him again for a while? You do not see him again for a while. Okay, cool. And there's a, like long tracks of people being like, we really like him, but no one knows who, is, no one knows who he is. So what's Marguerite's deal? She is married Is she to, crushing on the Pimpernel? She, well, she likes the Pimpernel just as much as anyone else. The okay. problem is she is French, mm-hmm. but she's not an aristo. She's an actress. Who then you, married, well, I know, uh, <laughs> she is the cleverest woman in England. Uh, that's like a moniker for her. And she it also sets the fashion for England. I like made a note that maybe she's like Kim Kardashian, but I think that's selling her short. Like, I can't think of who the actual person 
If it were today, she would have an app with her own emojis. Yeah, she's yes, certainly. Okay. <laughs> uh, as well as like a reality show about her kitchen or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And she's married to Saint to Sir Percy Blakeney, uh, and she got involved with him after she came over from France and uh, abandoned her acting career, but is now super famous. So I guess it's fine. And Sir Percy Blakeney, uh, she's a little estranged even after a year of marriage because he doesn't seem to like her that much anymore. Oh, no. They had a falling out where she was sort of responsible for an aristo in France getting killed. Oh, good job, Marguerite. Now she had her reasons, Andrew, because her, her brother Armand was beaten up. By this Aristo, and she heard through the grapevine that that uh, Aristo was helping Austria, and maybe would t- would convince Austria to come against the French Revolution. Oh no! It's almost like not all rich people are good. Exactly. <laughs> so she kind of mentioned that to some people, and then those people almost like Reddit detective killed him, like kind of like went through all his papers and found his stuff and found a bunch of evidence to like send him to the guillotine as they well as him and yeah. got him beheaded. Yeah. They okay, doxed good. him and beheaded his entire family. Okay, cool. Which didn't, which did not rub her husband well. Cause he's like knighted and a member of the English aristocracy. Mm-hmm. So, but her reason, of course, she's like, Oh, I had to defend my brother. I don't know what is happening. Um, <laughs> I am going to insist that you do the voice for Marguerite whenever you talk about her, please. Thank you. Love, Andrew. Okay, noted. Uh, Now, Lady uh, Sir Blakeney is often described through her point of view as uh, lazy and dumb, uh, very pretty and very tall, kind of foppish. Uh, I'm trying to... Okay. It is often said among her circle, it's often asked, excuse me, how that stupid, dull Englishman ever came to be admitted within the intellectual circle who, which revolved around the cleverest woman in Europe, as her friends unanimously called her, no one ventured to guess. Golden key is said to open every door, asserted the more malignantly inclined. <laughs> so there's a lot of rumors that she married him solely for the money, which she, you know, in her heart of hearts, thinks that they really loved each other and something went wrong. Uh-huh. He is also later described as a lazy, good-humored non-entity. <laughs> Put that on my tombstone, I guess. <laughs> so you get like chapter after chapter of her being kind of passionately interested in this conflict, but not really sure what to do about it. And then she's married to this foppish idiot that she's kind of run out of patience for and feels really wasted with, right? Okay. So... Here's where the book kicks off. Chauvelin, a a man from the French government, arrives in England, and he has fox-like eyes, Andrew. What do you think? What do you think that means about him? Uh, He's sly like a fox. Yeah, he's also evil. Oh, no. (laughs) Which is, like, pretty apparent right away, because he corners her, and he's like, (laughs) you will help me find the Scarlet Pimpernel. And she goes, I don't know how to do that. He goes, well, two of my men kidnapped these two guys 
and they're going to this party, and they're going to meet the Pimpernel, and you're going to be there, so you got to f- trail them and find out who the Pimpernel is. Mm-hmm. And she goes, oh, no, I, w- I do not know what to do. <laughs> I must find the Pimpernel. Now, <laughs> why would she do this, Andrew? Well, her brother, Armand, is in France, and Chauvelin is threatening that her brother will come to harm if she does not help him. Oh, no. Dun, dun, dun. I can sense, like, the musical cues happening. Like, you you could set this to, like, a general hospital soundtrack, and I think that it would fit. You can also see in some of the dialogue or the scenes how it originated as a play, or at least with a really good sense of drama. Mm-hmm. The whole scene where Chauvelin enlists her help is set at an opera, and she has her own box but this is like the old version of opera boxes where like you literally are in like a phone booth watching an opera. Okay. And so he like sneaks in and hangs out with her while the entreact is playing and like convinces her to help him. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it feels like a movie. It's, it's really cool. So then they go to the party and she has to like play a couple tricks on some people to figure out where they're going to meet the Pimpernel that night. And uh, she gets some information from Sir Andrew Folk, and she gives it to Chauvelin. She's really not excited about it. The Pimpernel is going to meet someone at 1 a.m. in the dining room. It's a late party for some not, for some 18th century bougie people. Yeah, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> we were we were like up this weekend, Andrew, and like it hit midnight each night, and I just started turning into a pumpkin. I don't know about you. Maybe we're not rich enough. Maybe if we were richer, we'd be better staying up late. That's very possible. So, Chauvelin goes in there. Who do you think is in the room, Andrew? The Scarlet Pimpernel. Well, not explicitly. Like, no meeting takes place. But he goes in there, and he finds on a couch Sir Percy Blakeney asleep. Okay. Just chilling. Like, okay. So Chauvelin lies down on the sofa and also takes a little nap. And <laughs> he just goes into a room with someone else asleep in it and is like, oh, that seems like a good idea. Yeah. Because okay. maybe the Pimpernel's going to show up. So yeah, he's going to lay some, down there. Get, and catch a take few a winks. <laughs> and of course, Marguerite has no idea what's happening. She doesn't know if Chauvelin got any information. She's kind of torn between this. Do I save my brother? Do I sell out Batman? Like, what do I do? Mm -hmm. And at one point, she argues this position, which I think is a pretty good one, that, well, he is like a superhero. Even if he does get caught, he'll probably find a way out of it. Which I don't know if I follow that logic. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I mean, I guess you always assume that Batman's gonna get out of it, though, because he always does. Like, you, I guess you have to assume that his past behavior is gonna predict his future behavior. One would think. Yeah, I would maybe sell out Batman to save you. I think Batman seems like he does a lot of good for a lot of people. Like, what do I do for anybody? <laughs> Tell him about phones and books, I guess. Yeah, that's my deal. Like, I don't, I've never saved, like, a city full of people or, like, a train or I don't even know what Batman does. Well, he beats up crazy people because he's mm-hmm. also crazy. Yeah. 
That's but then people get crazier like in response to him being crazy. So I don't know. Uh huh. Uh huh. Batman's. I don't know how. Like if the Pimpernel has a bunch of masked villains who arise in response to him. I don't know. But maybe <laughs> Batman's not the most use- useful <laughs> comparison point for this story. So she's leaving the party, and she sees Chauvelin, and he refuses to give her any information on what he has learned in the dining room, mm-hmm. but he assures her that this letter incriminating her brother, which he produced at the opera, uh, will be returned to her if he can, uh, as soon as he has the Scarlet Pimpernel in France. And she's all worried, and she's stressed out, and she goes home with uh, Sir Percy, and they have like this really heartbreaking scene in the moonlight outside their house at like three in the morning where she confesses all the reasons that she sold out that aristocrat and why she's sad that mm-hmm. uh, he's estranged and she's really worried about her brother being in danger. Um, it's it's pretty moving. I want to read the passage at the end of the scene. Okay. <clears throat> so they they have this big fight and she's constantly trying to tell him that she still loves him and she doesn't know how this went wrong. Uh, and he kind of acquiesces, but does not, you know, kiss her or uh, do anything more than offer his hand to her at one point. And she, he sends her inside, basically like, hey, this is over. Let's not talk about this anymore tonight. Had she but turned back then and looked out once more onto the rose-lit garden, she would have seen that which would have made her own suffering seem but light and easy to bear. A strong man overwhelmed with his own passion and his own despair. Pride had given way at last, obstinacy was gone, the will was powerless. He was but a man, madly, blindly, passionately in love, and as soon as her light footsteps had died away within the house, he knelt down upon the terrace steps, and in the very madness of his love he kissed one by one the places where her small foot had trodden, and the stone balustrade there where her tiny hand had rested last. Which is like it's also very romantic, but also really crazy to yeah. think about. <laughs> now that I read it out loud, and yeah, I like think... imagine you like Laura leaves the house for some reason, <laughs> but you had a talk that was so great that you get down on your hands and knees as you start kissing the floor <laughs> and like the doorknob and the banister. Or we had like a really romantic breakfast, and I just spend the next ten minutes like kissing all the pots and pans in the kitchen yeah you get grease grease all over your lips oh this faucet oh this rug this is where she was she opened the fridge with this (laughs) handle (laughs) Mm, the crisper drawer (laughs) uh yeah i read that out loud and it sounds kind of crazy but (laughs) this now keep in mind that it took you to reading it out loud to realize how insane it was (laughs) well but in the moment this scene plays out and it's it's been a lot of yo this guy's an idiot yo he is a lazy non-entity uh yo he is tearing me apart lisa because i can't believe (laughs) that we like our marriage is falling apart Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden uh, she's kind of opened up to him, and while he has not been super forthcoming with her, we get this scene of him like clearly being passionate and knowing what he wants, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which other uh, heretofore has been lacking in his character. So the next morning, she gets up. She wants to see him. She wants to talk to him. And he goes, 
hey, wife, I need to leave on unexpected business. And she's a little confused because he's only had two hours to get any news since she went to bed. Mm-hmm. And she takes it upon herself to s- kind of snoop around. Now that she's like reinterested in her husband, uh, she goes into his study. And this is a thing that is like a little odd. Andrew, can you imagine in this day and age living with someone and like not knowing what's in their office? No, because it's not like Mad Men where I have an office that nobody can go into. Yeah, it's a weird thing. She goes in there. She like doesn't want to get caught by the servant like snooping around. Now, she has only been married to him for a year. A year is a while. As somebody who's been married to somebody else for a year, like it's not no time. Mm-hmm. Certainly. And it's not something like... Rebecca, I was reminded of the of the novel Rebecca in the segment because there's large passages of that where she's wandering through a house that she doesn't know very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, she's been around for years. She should have at least seen his study, you know. Mm-hmm. And she's remarking on the weight of the furniture and the style of wood, and again how this man is seemingly more of a man <laughs> than she was giving him credit for. For if only I had now. gone into this one room in my house, I would have realized <laughs> that there was more to him than there seemed to be. And it all culminates in her finding something on the floor, Andrew. Okay. Now I neglected to tell you earlier something very important about the Scarlet Pimpernel. Okay. Whenever he pulls off a caper or a heist, he leaves a little note to infuriate those froggy Frenchmen. Now, is it like a calling card thing where it's always the same, or is there always some like cool little quip? There's sometimes there's quips. There is often and almost always the insignia of a little scarlet flower. Okay. Right. And she finds on the floor a ring with that insignia. Like, okay. Perfect for putting that on notes and, and waxen seals. He knows the Scarlet Pimpernel. Now, she first jumps to the conclusion as she's like working through whether or not her doofy husband may or may not be this superhero that, well, we all love the Scarlet Pimpernel and like... <laughs> Aren't like ladies like wearing red flowers in their hair all the time and like wearing earrings that are red pimpernels? Like, maybe this is, like, he just a got thing. this as a reward from the Scarlet Pimpernel's <laughs> Kickstarter. <laughs> he tweeted about the Scarlet Pimpernel and they gave him a tote bag. Maybe he got it for free in a box of Scarlet Pimpernel O's. <laughs> <laughs> he just had to send back three box tops. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, of course, she slowly. Uh, accepts this idea that maybe this doofy husband is in fact the superhero that everyone is super excited about. Mm -hmm. And he has gone off to France on a mission to save the Comte that we were talking about earlier, uh, as well as her brother, which she cried about in the moonlight before he kissed the stairs. Right. And so she meets up with Sir Andrew Folk, and she's like, hey, I think I know who the Scarlet Pimpernel is, and I'm (laughs) fairly certain that you do too. And uh, Chauvelin is going to go after him because I may or may not have told him what's going on. Whoops. Whoops. 
and we got to go stop him. And it's one of those situations where there's a lot of back and forth where uh, they're like, you can't go. You're like a lady. What are you doing? And she goes, well, I'm going to go anyway. So you should probably come with me if you think I'm not going to be safe, Mm -hmm. Uh, which is of its time. I think it's handled okay. Uh, So then we embark on like the latter adventure of the book, which involves traipsing through the French countryside and like disguises. And at one point the Pimpernel like uh, gets into a scene where he's in disguise with, uh, with Chauvelin and they're in the same inn and he like distracts him by filling a snuff box full of pepper, like just flat out black pepper. Okay. And Chauvelin's really into snuff apparently. And he goes to, <laughs> he goes to share some of it and it's like a, pepper bomb in his face this is like the 18th century home alone yeah (laughs) Uh, and then chauvelin escapes so and from then on out it's you know can they will they save armand and le comte de tournay they do uh and will the pimpernel live to have more adventures in the future which of course he will as we covered it's not really a cliffhanger he gets away it's fine or just like tune in next week there is a little tune in next for the week. next book. Yeah, because Chauvelin does not like he goes flying away from the Death Star. Like Chauvelin doesn't get any specific comeuppance. Well, so now I wonder, and I I don't know that you did any research on this, and it's fine if you didn't. Now I wonder if subsequent Pimpernel books just like get right into Pimpernel adventures, since we don't really need the um, audience surrogate Marguerite character anymore, or if she's still like involved, or what the deal is. Uh, from what I can tell you, by accidentally buying the the, the League of the Scarlet Pimpernel, <laughs> the first chapter is called Sir Percy Explains. So okay. we, I think we jump right into more Pimpernel adventures. Uh, I do not know Marguerite's role in the rest of those books. Okay, that's fine. Um, so yeah, that's that's the book. What do you what are you thinking as I've been talking about it? What do you want to know? I mean, it, we were we've been using other things as points of reference throughout this. So like Robin Hood, the Avengers, Batman, uh, Zorro. Yeah. Do you think this is like the first like is it the precursor to all these like caped heroes with secret identities or is it just like an early example of it or what because we had talked about how like realism was more popular during Mm -hmm. this era and Mm -hmm. then this this story i don't know if it ushered in a an era where like fantastical or really dramatic stuff was more popular or if this by itself was just more dramatic and more popular but um but yeah i find myself wondering how this fits into like literary history and also like fictional history like what other books owe their genesis to the scarlet pimpernel or is this just picking up on stuff that was kind of already floating around i don't know i i feel like there's i don't know the count of monte cristo well enough but i feel like there's some double identity stuff in that book as well and that's maybe 50 to 60 years prior mm-hmm. um that's alex dumas so anybody who's listening can please write in and tell me otherwise um but yeah i percy's a really good i i, I know i don't want to lean on batman too much but it's such a good 
counter to who the Pimpernel is. Like he's always saying when he's when he's just himself, his personality is really doofy. Like <laughs> the big the big moment he gets uh, earlier in the book is at the ball, and he pens this like terrible little poem that apparently spends the rest of the po- like the party going around uh, making everyone laugh. I'm gonna try and find it in a sec. Yeah, I think I, I'm doing a little bit of reading on superheroes now, and it does seem like um, there's some there are some folklore uh, pre- predecessors. So Robin Hood is one. Sure, but sure. As far as like the dual identity thing goes, Pimpernel is the first or one of the first examples of this trope. Interesting. Uh, Percy's Percy's poem and i i will say up until it was revealed it was only maybe a chapter or so before that i i had cottoned to the idea that it was percy mm-hmm. uh he, he it's a stupid little poem we seek him here we seek him there those frenchies seek him everywhere <laughs> is he in heaven is he in hell that demid elusive pimpernel and like the prince of wales is at this party like going around this is really funny like this is a great poem that your husband wrote like saying <laughs> it to marguerite and she can't stand it like she thinks it's the worst and it just goes to like set up that he couldn't possibly and i was honestly impressed how long the book had gone convincing me that he was just going to be an idiot getting in the way of the story happening yeah it's just i mean you had to be suspicious that it was focusing so much on this Focusing so much on this guy and protesting a bit too much about how inconsequential he is as like a human being. Yeah, it's one of those things I kind of want to go back and read it, even though I clearly have other Pimpinero books to read now. Yeah, uh, by accident. <laughs> by accident. Uh, to get that like watching Sixth Sense twice thing, like go back and read the first half of this book knowing that Percy yeah. Yeah, is that the Pimpernel. Is, I think that's, I mean... Having a discussion about spoiler culture, I guess, is its, own, is its own thing. It is its own thing. But I think that's why people like to go in blind sometimes is because, I mean, a, a, a story well told is something to be enjoyed in and of itself, like even if you know everything that happens. Yeah. But there is that fun of not knowing and then of going back and seeing stuff that you didn't see the first time once you know. Yeah, not every novel is meant to be read and reread. No, you know, not every story is built for that. But every and not story, all like twist-based fiction, like M. Night Shyamalan has shown us that relying <laughs> on the twist to drive your dumb story is not always a great way to go. No, it is certainly not. Mm-hmm. Um, there is some stuff in this book that I'm not sure has aged particularly well give me a couple examples i mean obviously anything that features women is gonna be problematic even when written by a woman yeah that is it's only a little i mean okay as a as a guy reading this book i'll say i found it very rarely explicitly problematic like okay there is the sense that you know she is a bystander to the main action of the story like the scene where the pimpernel you know, tosses Pepper in Chauvelin's face or whatever. Like, she is in a room in that little inn, but she's not, like, participating. 
And then she spends the next couple chapters like trailing Chauvelin and just watching a bunch of stuff happen. Yeah. So it is, it is interesting that she decided to make the protagonist be a woman, but it's also she's not really the protagonist, I guess. She's more of the sounds like she's more of the fly on the wall. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, structure because you don't because it hinges on the secret identity. You can't have it be about that character. Right. You know, it has to because be then about... you get into some Gone Girl stuff where it's like, why is this dude not thinking <laughs> the answers to all these riddles that he knows in his own head? Like, yeah. Why don't why, why don't I find out, even though I am in this guy's brain, why don't I find out all the stuff in his brain like right, right away? Precisely. Uh, so there <laughs> is a little weird, but she does end up kind of like saving him later not not explicitly she like helps him out um and she is trying to do things whether or not the you know the book is kind of limiting her through like an explicit villain in Chauvelin right you know okay um but there's a whole section in France we're in Calais where this is the latter part of the book the Pimpernel is trying to save Armand and the Count and whatever, all this stuff. And he has to disguise himself so that Chauvelin will not know who he is. And there's a, this Jew comes in. And oh, no. I say it that way because that's how the book says it. <laughs> it's pretty not great. Um, uh, he's described as having a general coating of grime about his cheeks and his chin, giving him a peculiarly dirty and loathsome appearance. He had the habitual stoop, those of his race affected in mock humility in past centuries, before <sighs> the dawn of equality and freedom in matters of faith. And I, what I can't tell from reading this book that was written in 1908 is, is it critiquing how some French people feel about Jews, which I think like is also like a sentence uttered in this book where later the reason that Sir Percy gives that they never found out his disguise was that French people dislike Jews so much that they won't come in with a few yards of them, (laughs) which is like, I don't even like saying that out loud. It's pretty uncomfortable. Well, and I also like how the book is like, well, we live in an enlightened age now, but look at this weird looking Jew. (laughs) It's kind of awful. (laughs) And there's like a, there's a Get a load of this weirdo. Where he bribes him, where Chauvelin is bribing this, uh, this Jew that he's pretending to be. And it's like, how many gold pieces are in my hand? Count them and help me. And it's like, stop it. This is yeah. That's the worst. It's pretty bad. <laughs> so the the scheme is that he dresses as this Jew and then like gives Chauvelin a bunch of false information, and then like ride and then gives Chauvelin the ride to theoretically where the Pimpernel will be. It's a pretty good con, mm-hmm. but it's really awful, and I don't like it at all. I it's cool. very inappropriate. I think. Oh boy. And it's at that point where, like, your Marguerite is mostly just running through the fields and hiding in the in the nights behind. I, I'm Irish now, sorry. She's <laughs> hiding in the night behind the hedges. Scarlet Pimpernel, and uh, she's 
she's not really the focus of the story and Chauvelin's trying to find the Pimpernel and there's a Jew on a coach and it's like, yes, you want to know how it happens, but also maybe we could tone some of this stuff down. Cool. So as we wrap up, tell me, based on this, would you read more Pimpernel books? Like even if you hadn't accidentally bought another one and like, does the story feel modern in the way it's being told, even though it's, you know, it's set um, 200 years ago and was written 100 years ago? Yeah, I would probably read more. Okay. Uh, I would be particularly interested to to read uh, the later books, like towards the end of... Excuse me, towards the end of the Reign of Terror, because mm-hmm. I want to know, like later chronologically in yes, the story, ex- not necessarily later in publication order. Yes, because I kind of want to know how they ratchet up the stakes. Like, does it fall uh, prey to the classic? Like, well, we have it can't just be a bad guy; it has to be the world exploding. Like, yeah, how do right. they make the conflict bigger? Uh, I would be interested to read that and what that that thing that always happens is there like a rejection of the call right is there like a part where he has to like a spider-man 2 yeah is there a spider-man 2 moment is there (laughs) we are using a lot of (laughs) superhero movies to describe this which i guess tells you something about this being the source material for a lot of that stuff yeah is there a part where someone else has to be the pimpernel for a while like i would be really interested to go through this and and check off which tropes that are at this point kind of comic book or this type of story tropes and see how many of them were in this series because i feel like there's probably a bunch um the the rich guy throwing a party and pretending to be an idiot and everybody liking him anyway but thus no one suspecting that he's capable of more uh works really well in this story and to your to your second question feels pretty modern um the the language is what makes it feel a little rough the there's they say zooks a lot they say <laughs> like gadzooks no just zooks which i guess is like shortened gadzooks which is okay. probably something else so that you're For not people saying, in a people in a hurry so that <laughs> people in a hurry who don't want to take the lord's name in vain i think that's why which I think Gadzooks is already people trying not to say God for whatever mm-hmm. they're trying to say. Uh, he says odds fish all the time, which I don't even know what that could be instead of. Let's bring that back. Odds fish. Odds fish. Odds fish, he says. Odds fish. I can't believe that he beat me so hard. Odds fish. <laughs> uh but yeah, I, other than some of the dialogue feeling dated or a little impenetrable when it's written in dialect, like there's some characters who are French that speak English that is like purposefully written poorly. Okay. That's a little bumpy. Uh, the first chap- first couple chapters at the coffee house where there's some lower class people uh, is a little wonky. Oh, yeah, I'm sure she has a really flattering take on lower-class dialect. Oh, y'all, Mr. Epseed. Uh, 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 uh. <laughs> like, that's, there's a lot of dropped H's and, mm-hmm. uh, like, O-I's instead of R's. Um, but other than that, I, I think it's pretty successful. I really liked the 
the various settings like it, it does have a, a good sense of place and set piece moments um, cool. throughout the book uh, and yeah to your question from a long time ago she really likes the aristocracy <laughs> uh-huh. and while Marguerite Saint Just is uh, a commoner ostensibly she is you know, married into a higher class and uh, is super famous for it. So she's not necessarily your everyday person. Yeah. I th- I would be interested to see how in the other books, some people who are not lords and ladies of England might run around in this universe mm-hmm. and whether or not, like what do they feel about the French revolution? And are there any like French aristos that maybe aren't so great? Kind of what you said before, because um, right now only the people who overthrew the aristocracy are evil, mm-hmm. and that seems a little problematic. Um, if if you've ever overthrown an aristocracy, <laughs> you can tell us about it by emailing us at overduepod at gmail dot com. Uh, we also have a robust social media presence. We are on Twitter at twitter dot com slash overduepod, and on Facebook at facebook dot com slash overduepod. Craig, do you have a list of people who have messaged us in the I last I do, week or so? in fact. I want to thank a bunch of people this week. Uh, Sandra C., Bunbury, uh, our good friends Margaret and Sophie, Michael, Melissa, Emily, Lindsay, Rachel, Molly, Jillian, Bookish Thoughts, Laura, VB, Kara, Tessa, Robert Zim, Sharon E., Dana, Mary, Samantha, Z., Amy, Melissa, and Eric. That's a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to thank... Did you mention the email address? You did. I did. Um, I want to thank... Anna, who wrote in from Switzerland. Hello, Anna. I want to thank Patty, uh, who wrote in. Uh, she's been supporting us on our Patreon, which you can find out more about at patreon.com slash pod. It's a way to support the show directly uh, if you like what you're listening to and want to keep the show growing. I think, Andrew, we're going to have some more details on what our Patreon is up to. Yeah, we've we've talked out some changes to um, stretch goals and reward tiers and things that I think we're going to make live as soon as we can sit down and actually make the changes on the page. So Yeah, and we want to thank... So watch out for that. uh, ...everybody for their uh, support of our most recent bonus episode where we had uh, one of our supporters, Asma, on to talk about Age of Innocence. It went pretty well. Yeah. Uh, And I do want to give a shout-out to our Goodreads group that Julie started... There's like already a bunch of people in there, and they were talking about movie novelizations. Andrew, someone brought up this book called The Princess, the Scoundrel, and the Farm Boy okay. by Alexandra Bracken, which is like a young reader's novelization of Star Wars A New Hope, which <laughs> sounds like really cool. There's like chapters from Leia's perspective and stuff. And if you wanted uh, to get kids to read it, though, why wouldn't you just call it Star Wars? <laughs> Oh, no. Yeah, maybe they didn't have the rights or something. I don't know. <laughs> uh, if people want to find out more about the show, Andrew, where should they go? They can go to overduepodcast.com, which is our website on the internet. Um, up there, we have links to iTunes, Stitcher, RSS. Those are all places you can subscribe. Um, if you subscribe in iTunes, especially, leave us ratings and reviews. We wanted to get to uh, 200 ratings and 100 reviews by the end of 2015, and we knocked that pretty well out of the park. So thank you so much to everybody who took the time to uh, tell iTunes what you think of us. Um, if you want to keep doing that, that helps us rise in the rankings and helps people find the show. It's really a, a great way to help us out if you don't 
you don't want to or can't do it with money. So, Andrew, I think that someone money. literally just did it right now. Like, oh, I nice. just refreshed it. It's pretty cool. It feels it's good. happening in real time. In real time. Andrew, what are you reading next week? Um, I'm going to be reading Good Omens uh, by Neil Gaiman and uh, Terry Pratchett. That's a dream team right there, I think. Yeah, I know. It's it's I'm a I'm a little more than a third of the way through it now, and I can already tell it's gonna be an interesting episode because there are a million characters and the action is everywhere. So And those are both <laughs> authors with like storied histories and Yeah, and yeah. And um, Terry Pratchett work. just passed away That's um, right. really recently, yep. actually. And yeah, so there there's gonna be a lot to talk about. That episode may run a little long, but we'll we'll try and tame it as we can. Um, Yeah, that will happen next Monday. And um, until then, everybody, thank you for listening and try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.